Welcome back to our series that we call Power from on High. We're currently in the sixth, cha- or the sixth lesson, by the way, sorry, <laughs> of Acts chapter 4. And we're looking at the subject of persecution. Not a, not a popular topic, but one that is, I think, very essential, um, challenging, I think, to our faith. But the Lord lays it out for us so very, very clearly. So we know that Peter and John have been arrested. They've been interrogated. They've asked them, in whose authority are you doing these things? And Peter, of course, being the lead apostle, he's always the one stepping up. He's the one that stepped out of the boat. He steps forward, filled with the Holy Spirit, as we know, and he took an opportunity to preach. And he told the Jewish leaders, without compromise, without wavering, without retreating in any way, that the miracle of the, of the lame beggar who was standing there, that word, that Greek word is mentioned a few times for emphasis, because of the name of Christ. And uh, that, was, that was not positive in the ears of the Sanhedrin, of course, the Jewish leaders, because they hated Christ. They wanted him dead because he was such a threat to their little kingdom. And he goes on to say that they were the ones who crucified him, the same one that God raised from the dead. So all their evil that they could throw at Jesus, God reversed, which he does with evil. And the Jewish officials, if you remember, were very surprised and amazed by the apostles' courage and their eloquence in speaking God's word. They were taking all these passages from the Old Testament and rightly applying them. And, and so they were astonished that these men were uneducated and that they had, were speaking and, and their, their demeanor was so strong. They would have brushed him aside as mere fishermen, but there was really something about their fearlessness and their empowered lives that reminded them of Christ. And that's what we, that's what we talked about last time, what that means, that, that, that they had been with Jesus. And on top of that, standing before them, of course, stood the poster child, the, the healed cripple, who had been laying at the temple for 40 years begging, and he's standing there as evidence of the power of God's grace. And so that's the purpose of miracles, was to demonstrate truth, and there he was. The man who was hoping for food, God gave spiritual life, and he's standing there as an incredible miracle. And so the Sanhedrin really are are kind of in a difficult spot. They can't deny the miracle that had taken place, and and everybody was against him in that sense because everybody recognized it as a legitimate miracle. When God did, did, did miracles, whether it was through Jesus or through the apostles, there was never any question as to whether they were real. I find that still so intriguing that they had such an authenticity that nobody questioned that it was a real miracle. And so they can't deny the miracle that had taken place If they did, they'd lose face. And they had to figure out something to do. So they sat the the three of them outside for a little bit of court conference. And again, their dilemma was they couldn't punish the apostles for performing such an act of kindness. Yet if they didn't stop this, they were going to be in real trouble. Their empire was about to crumble. They were the quintessential religious hypocrites And they were only concerned about keeping up appearances and holding on to their power. All they cared about was that their followers respected them and followed them, no matter what heresy they brought before them. And so what they decided, the only option they had, was to create fear by intimidation. 
And we've talked about how the enemy does that and how he's doing that in America. He's creating this fear and people are, 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 um, are, are silenced themselves. They're afraid to speak. And so they set out then to silence them by a gag order, forbidding them, of course, to talk about Jesus and certainly not to preach about him in public. Their response is given in verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give you heed, in other words, to listen or obey you, rather than to God, you be the judge. This was a masterful response because they turned the tables on the, on the Pharisees, on the Sanhedrin. No longer were the apostles on trial. Suddenly, the Sanhedrin was on trial before God. And while maintaining honor and respect, the apostles were not afraid. They had great courage and they challenged the Sanhedrin, the group that had the power to put them to death. They said, you be the judge. Should we do right in the sight of God or do what you're telling us to do? Respectful, but bold and courageous. They had a lot of bravery here because, they, again, they could have decided, ah, sorry, we're going to cut off your heads. We're going to crucify you. Their question really was, or their statement really was, who has the greatest authority, the Supreme Court of Heaven or the Supreme Court of Israel? Now, the Sanhedrin knew the answer to that. They knew that they were hypocrites. They knew that they had lied. They had created a conspiracy theory to hide Jesus, uh, to, to cover up his resurrection. That failed because he's resurrected and standing before them as a man who is healed by him. He's still working. He's still alive. But they didn't dare say anything. They, they were silenced because what were they going to say? That's where you've got somebody when they can't respond. And so the apostles answered them, said in verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Double negative in the Greek, ume. And it means there's not a possibility that we're going to remain silent. There is no way that we're not, that we're going to stop speaking. We will not retreat into silence. We refuse, absolutely refuse to stop telling of the things that we've seen and heard. That's a zeal for God. That should be our response. That no matter what the consequences, we will not be silenced. And that's what Satan is doing in our culture today. He's trying to silence the church. And he's done a pretty good job. People are afraid to speak up. They're going to be called names. They're going to be accused. And so we're afraid. Now, it's interesting, they didn't explain why, but to stop giving the gospel would have been a direct violation to God's word. So the apostles don't explain it. They don't have to. They'd receive the Holy Spirit, and its purpose, as they know, was to be a witness, and they had been given the command to go and make disciples in the Great Commission. And so no matter, no matter what the consequences, no matter what they were going to face, they would not obey the court's demand to be silent. This is a very important text, and it introduces the first New Testament example of what we call civil disobedience. I asked the men this morning that I pray with if we had talked about this in a while, and it'd been, uh, they were thinking it's been a lot of years. Some of you are new, so some of this may be 
new information. And I hope to make it very, very clear this morning what God's Word says about this thing we call civil disobedience. Over the years, not so much in America, but generally across the globe, Christians have faced the dilemma of what to do when their religious convictions conflict with governmental authority. It's happening all over the world. It's worldwide. What are we to do when our civil authorities demand something that violates God's word? Well, some of our country have already experienced this in the past few years with COVID-19. You might remember that a number of local governments, not necessarily our federal government or our local governments, forbid churches from um, meeting. And so they demanded that they shut down in the interest of public health. We didn't know initially what we were dealing with, but they demanded that they not meet. That was a problem because Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we're not to forsake the gathering together. God tells us that we must meet. And I think we experience just a little bit of that. And I think we, we, we know now the importance of that and what happens when you take the logs out of that fire and how they cool down. We experienced that. I remember thinking at the beginning of that, wow, this is going to prove to us how important it is to gather. And we kind of take that for granted because we're free. Churches all over the world are clamoring to gather. I think I mentioned um, over in um, Ukraine, the churches are booming because there's so much suffering and people are looking for answers. And the pastors, for the most part, are standing strong. They're not leaving the country. They're helping to shepherd people through that. So what the government demanded then was really in direct violation with what God tells us and his church to do. And I'm really thankful for John MacArthur, who had a lot of criticism from his religious peers, from his pastoral peers, He chose to take them on and say that we will not cease from meeting. They have the attorneys, of course, and the money to fight it. They did, and they won big. That was pretty successful. But his stand was, well, the rest of us are trying to figure out, what do we do? What do we do? How do we handle that? He took a stand. He said, we will not keep from meeting. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the risk, the church will meet. And that was a, I think that was a stellar moment in the life of the church. Many churches didn't meet for a year beyond that because they were so afraid and they were captivated by the, well, if you're love, if you're love you won't do that and, and all of that that went with it. So what would Peter and John have done in that particular instance? What do you think they would have said to the government? Peter and John, you can't meet because there's a threat of illness. What do you think they would have said? We will not stop meeting. That's the answer, right? I don't think they would have stopped. You know, as you know, Canada is experiencing the same censorship that the apostles faced. I want to read you something out of their law. This is section 319.1. That means nothing to me other than this is what this says. Everyone who, by communicating statements in a public place, incites hatred against any identifiable group, where such incitement is likely to lead to a breach of the peace is guilty and an indictable, and it's an indictable offense punishable up to two years in prison. Let me, let me just kind of lay that out for you a little bit. 
In Canada, then, it's against the law to make statements in public that incite hatred against any group. So if something's said that would, that would be considered as hate speech or offensive, it was punishable up to two years in imprisonment. So let me ask you a question, though. Isn't that what Peter and John did? Didn't they incite hatred by telling the truth? It wasn't their goal to incite hatred. It wasn't their goal to provoke hatred. It wasn't their goal to be antagonistic. But they would not shrink back knowing that would happen. They had a confidence in God. They knew, they, they knew what they spoke. They knew what would happen. They saw it in their Savior. He said the exact same things. They follow in his footsteps. They say the same thing. They know the potential. They know how the crowd is going to respond. They know how certainly the Jewish leaders would respond. So we're not to go out looking for ways of provoking antagonism. That, that's not the Christian demeanor. We don't look for a fight. However, if we're afraid of that being the result, then we won't be faithful evangelists. My goal in this series, God's goal in this series through Acts, is to help us to be prepared to what might come our way if we're willing to stand up and speak and stand for truth. So what the public sees is hatred. God sees as love when we call sinners to repentance. We cannot get around it that many are going to view the loving good news as hate speech. Because we have to tell them they're not a victim. They're a sinner. They're part of the problem. And again, this whole thing with this victim mentality and everybody being so sensitive and it's all about me, we've got to move them from believing that they're a victim against everything to the fact that they're a problem to things. They're part of the problem. And so we have to get them there. And so Peter and John knew this was going to antagonize them. They knew that it was going to provoke uh, hatred. And that was not their goal to do that. They were hoping they would receive the truth, but they didn't. And I think they knew that. So here's the question that I want to help answer this morning. Is it right or ever right to disobey our civil authorities? Is it right to do that? And the answer is absolutely yes. It's yes when their demands conflict with God's word. I believe that the Bible gives us very clear guidance on this as to when and how believers must, let me emphasize that word, where believers must disobey their civil authorities. Boy, if there's any message that could be canceled by cancel culture, this would be it, wouldn't it? We don't have that much exposure, so probably nothing's going to happen. But this would be one of those that would be canceled and censored. But before we get to the details, let me give you a definition of civil disobedience. I kind of narrowed this down to something a little manageable. Civil disobedience is a nonviolent, a nonviolent refusal to obey certain laws or commands of a government when it demands obedience to what God has forbidden and forbids what God has commanded. 
Let me say this before we look at the texts that deal with this. This doctrine of civil disobedience is clearly a legitimate doctrine. It's one that you may have never heard if you haven't been in the church. I know we've covered it. Maybe you've been in churches and maybe you've never heard this message before. But let me reassure you that it is a legitimate doctrine and we'll see that in a few minutes. But let me also say this. Please listen. Civil disobedience should be the exception and not the rule for Christians. We don't run around disobeying the government. And it's a doctrine that we shouldn't take lightly. Our general demeanor as believers is not to be disobedient to government. It's to be honoring and respectful and submissive. Listen to all of our authorities. Listen, kids. I want the kids' attention a minute. You have authority figures over you. The primary authority over you is your mom and dad. You will be blessed if you obey your parents. You will be blessed if you let them guide you in wisdom. No, they're not perfect. God didn't give you perfect parents. He didn't give them perfect parents. Your coaches and your teachers, give respect to those people that are over you in authority. Your Sunday school teachers, learn to respect authority. That's God's plan for your life. We have a generation that doesn't respect authority. And the reason is their parents didn't instill them, instill instill that into them. Teach your children to respect authority, and it begins with you. They are to obey you. Children, did you hear that? Parents, do you have any trouble? Just send them. Send them my way. I'll talk to them. I've done all that parenting thing. Now Now I'm free of any heartache or trouble. Although adult kids can be trouble too. They're still kids. Right, Tim and Sherry? I mean, it just happens, right? Not that their kids are bad, please. I didn't mean that. I mean, they can relate to it. You know, I thought the rapture happened earlier, and it was this section. Then I saw Tim, and I thought, well, I'm pretty sure the rapture didn't happen. It's always empty over here. So we got to be careful with this doctrine, and, I, and I, it can be abused. And I hope to, I hope to draw a line here today that, that we, we really can't abuse it if we're really careful and we're watching what God's Word says. There are three, ca- three key passages that I want to touch on that, that touch on this subject. You're probably familiar with Romans 13. I could spend an entire sermon at least on this, but I want to just touch on a few things. It says every person. Who is that? Kids, does that include you? Kids, does that include you? I know there are a lot of you in here. Kids, does that include you? There we go. There's a few of them. Now they're awake. So he says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from, except from by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. The main idea of this text is that Christians should be in subjection to all governing authorities. The Greek word is hupotasso. It's an interesting word. It means, um, it's a military term that was used um, in, in the, for soldiers aligning themselves or, or arranging themselves under an authority figure, like a captain or a sergeant or whatever. So it really means to line up under. Here's the idea. The idea is having a demeanor of deference 
of respect and authority to those in charge. It's an attitude. It's a demeanor. It's a a worldview. Now, why should we do this and what should be our motive? Number one, first of all, we should submit because of who? God. That's the main emphasis. Government exists because God established it. God calls servants in the government deacons. They're servants. They're supposed to be servants of him. He appoints them. God appoints all authority. I've had some really bad authority figures over me. Was that God's appointment for me and for them? Yes, it was. All governments and authorities are instruments in the hand of God for his purposes. Every appointment, every authority, our government today, just think about the Republicans and the Democrats. Let's just, let's just lay it out there. The truth is every single one of those are instruments in God's sovereign hand. Do we believe that? So it's easy to forget, isn't it? Sometimes you think that can't be. God, that, that just simply can't be. But that's not what this, this text would deny any doubt of that. So to be in subjection means an attitude where we are acknowledging their legitimacy based on the fact that they're God's divine appointment. Does that make sense? Now get this. This is an attitude. This is a a worldview, the way we look at God's structure. The second reason that we're to submit is to avoid chastisement. Those, Those who oppose His will will receive condemnation upon themselves. That word condemnation there sometimes means eternal punishment, but it could also mean chastisement or or just some sort of punishment. Now, this is exactly what Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 3, 1 through 2. He says, remind them, so he's telling Titus here to speak to his congregation, to speak to the congregations, remind them to be subject to, there's our same word, to rulers, now he expands it, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Number two, listen to this one, to malign no one. That's a, I'm convicted of that. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration to all men. That's, that's quite a list there. So we're to be in subjection to our, in subjection to our governing authorities. We're to be obedient. We're, we're to be doing good works. We're not to be maligning them. We're to be peaceful and gentle when it comes to respecting our government officials. Peter later wrote this in chapter 2, in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, it's clear here for the third time that we're to submit to all authority figures and notice why. This is big. For the Lord's sake. That's why we do it. Not because they're worthy of it all the time, but for the Lord's sake. In other words, we do that for the cause of Christ. 
And what's the government's primary responsibility? It's to punish uh, punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That's the, that's the goal. Now, what we have seen in our government is that's reversed. We're in trouble. Because what they're doing is they're seeing the victims and treating them well, and they're punishing those who do right. And so that's been twisted around. But I want you to notice something else, that when we do right, we set the example for the world. It says, it's, it's, it goes on to say that it's our witness that silences the ignorance of foolish men. We're to set the example to our neighbors. So here's what we learned from all these passages then, that we're commanded as Christians to be submissive and obedient and respectful to our governing authorities. That's very, very clear. There's no doubt about that. To put it in the vernacular then, we should bend over backwards to be exemplary citizens. Now, that puts us in a quandary, doesn't it? That's a real quandary. And you say, well, why is that? Because Peter, who demands that we submit to government, is the same Peter who refused to obey the Sanhedrin's gag order. So how do we reconcile the two? On one hand, Peter's writing that we're to be submissive, and another, and another part, another scripture, we see that he wasn't. He completely defied what the government said. So how do we, on the one hand, say that we're to submit to government and yet defy what it demands? Well, I want to answer that in two ways. First of all, I want to show why civil disobedience does not contradict the command to be in subjection. Because we tend to look at it A or B. It's either this or it's this. And I'm going to bring those together in a way that will make some sense, I hope. Secondly, I want to clarify what kind of situations where we are required to disobey. There's a lot, by the way, there's going to be a lot of questions in this, questions of conscience. You know, what do we do about a vaccine when when the Bible doesn't command us that we're to take a vaccine or not to take a vaccine? What do we do in those areas? So there's going to be a lot of questions, and I'm not going to be able to answer them all, but I am going to give you a framework that's enough for God's Word to guide us. So let's first look at why disobedience doesn't deny the demand for submission. And I believe it's significant that all three verses that we just looked at use the same Greek word, submit, and it's the word hupotasso. All, all, three, all three of those, they use the word submit. And they don't use the word obey, hupokuo. They don't use that word. And I think there's a, a, a legitimate reason why. The writers could have very easily instructed us to obey our authorities, But why didn't they? And I think since it's used three times in three texts with the same word, I think that has some meaning. So why is that? Well, I think because even though they're related and there's overlap, they're not exactly the same. And here's what I want us to see. I believe the difference. Submission emphasizes a voluntary and willing attitude of the heart. So it's a, it's a perspective. It's a desire. It's a willingness. 
So the stress with this particular Greek word is on our attitude and our acknowledging God's design for authority. Does that make sense? So think about it as an attitude and a demeanor and a willingness and a desire to honor God by respecting and submitting to authorities. Obedience, on the other hand, means enforced compliance. The difference can be seen between wives and children and employees. Wives are called to submit, not obey their husbands. There's a difference there, a real, I think a significant difference. They're called to submit with a willing heart, with a heart of cooperation. We don't get any evidence, nor do I believe it should ever be, that any husband ever demand that his wife obey him. That's not what we see in Scripture. We're to love our wives. We're never to demand that they are in complete obedience to what we demand. They're to submit with a willing heart of cooperation and and complimenting their husband and encouraging their husband That's the idea here. Now, that's different from children. Children are expected to be obedient. Obedience is demanded from the top. I'm sure you parents have all said, when they ask why, you say, because I said so. I'm in charge here. I'm the parent. And you're right. It's true. They're to obey. The same is true with employees. They're expected to obey their employers, and their employers can enforce that obedience. So there is a distinction here. Now, I'm going somewhere, so don't let me lose you. There is a distinction, even though they overlap, and even though I believe submission's ultimate goal is obedience, the emphasis is different. I won't go into all the grammar, but the grammar uh, helps out with this. And I want to kind of just restate this with some of the grammar that's emphasized. Listen to this. This is Romans 1 then. Watch the difference in this. It is essential that you willingly and habitually submit yourself to the governing authorities. You're taking responsibility for that. So this is what I want us to see then. Disobedience in the right circumstances does not contradict the command to be in subjection to our authorities. Disobedience in the right circumstances does not contradict the command to be in subjection to our authorities. So here's what this is saying. Hang in there with me. This I don't think it's easy because I think I confused my men this morning (laughs) when I was going over this. So hopefully I can make it clear. We can be submissive in our willingness to yield to authority and yet say no on biblical grounds. Listen, let me say that again. We can be submissive in our willingness to yield to our authorities and yet say no for biblical reasons and biblical grounds. If that wasn't the case, to disobey government would deny Romans 13, Titus, and 1 Peter. It's not an either or. Think about this with a wife. She can have a willing, submissive, yielding spirit towards her husband 
and still say no to her husband if what he asks is unbiblical or harmful. That does not make her unsubmissive. Does that make sense? I hope this is clear. We have to make this distinction. Because if we don't, then we can't fulfill being submissive to our government if we ever disobey. The two two can go together, but we have to be careful how we put them together. I think an illustration might be helpful. And even though I said children um, doesn't quite fit this, I think this illustrates the point. So let's say parents, they have a six-year-old little boy and he loves soccer. And he's out in the front yard and he kicks the ball across the road. It's a busy road. And his mom comes out and says, do not cross that road. I don't care whether that ball goes across the road or not. You are not to cross that road. Obey me. And then the little boy, well, yeah. So he has a babysitter. And the babysitter has a different set of rules. And he's outside and the little boy kicks the ball, goes across the road. The babysitter says, you need to go get the ball. And the little boy goes, no, I can't do that. I told you, I'm the one in charge here. Go get the ball. And the little boy would be, I, 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 I would, but my parents told me I can't. Is he being unsubmissive? No. He can still have an, a, a demeanor of, of listening to her and following her on everything. But that little boy had a higher authority. And he followed that authority. That doesn't mean he was being disrespectful or dishonoring to his babysitter. Does that make sense? Hopefully that's a window that brings some light to this subject. So Peter and John then, I believe, still held an attitude of submission when they refused to comply with the Sanhedrin's demand to stop speaking. Now you might ask, well, how is that? How does that look? How how do you stay submissive when you're being disobedient? What does that look like? Well, first of all, if you remember, they were submissive in their attitude and their arrest. They didn't fight them. They didn't defy them. Peter didn't pull out his sword to cut off the head like he tried before. He learned they were submissive to the authorities when they were arrested. And secondly, they were submissive in that they were willing to accept the consequences of their disobedience. We're going to see that in the examples that we look at. You can can defy government, but then you also have to say, I'm willing to accept the consequences that the government will bring down on me. That's submission. That's biblical submission, the attitude and willingness to accept authority under God's design. In Acts 5.40, they willingly accepted imprisonment again, and this time they were flogged. So they go back out, they do the same thing, they're brought back to prison, this time they're punished. They didn't fight, they didn't run, they were submissive. So they were submissive on the front end in their arrests, and they will be submissive again by the end by accepting government's punishment for their disobedience. That's how we be submissive and yet deny and disobey when it violates God's word. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? So if, if somebody, if you ever talk to somebody and you say, well, I'm not going to obey that because it's against God's word, they may bring out Romans 13 and say, well, but you're, you're being unsubmissive to the government. And now you can say, no, 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 no. You can still have a, a, a submissive attitude and a submissive spirit, which I do. I respect authority. But that authority stops when they expect us to deny 
God's word. Understood? Their authority doesn't go any farther if it violates God's word. So I want to make sure we understand, first of all, that we're to be obedient (laughs) and we're to be submissive. And I think when those times come and that we are, that we, we may have to say no, listen, I think we can still do it as we're going to see with a submissive, respectful, honoring attitude. And I think that's important because I think that's part, would be part of our witness. It's hard, isn't it? I had somebody tell me the other day, if they ever come through my front door, I'm shooting them. And I was like, I don't think that's what the God's word says. You know, that's one of those people that took it and ran with it. And if they ever come through for my guns, you know, but I'm not going to get into all that. But it's, uh, you know, it, it was like, I was kind of shocking. I didn't quite know what to say, but I'll give them my sermon. So that's what I handle it. So there are some other examples of civil disobedience in scripture. And I was surprised. I think I got them all. There's at least 12 and I want to run through those scenarios with you because I think, I think you're going to get a good taste for what this should look like. The first recorded act of disobedience is found in Exodus 1, 15 through 22 when the midwives disobeyed the king. Probably know the, the story. In Exodus 1, 15 through 22, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was uh, Shifra, the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the footstool, if if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Sounds like China. But the midwives, notice, feared God. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Now, pretty simple. It made the king very angry. Look with me at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. 19, and the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. We don't know, by the way, whether that was true. Probably a lie, we don't know, but it wasn't the reason the midwives disobeyed the king. So they weren't truthful anyway, or fully truthful. The real reason was that they feared God and they chose civil disobedience in order to save the baby's lives. There'd be no question, would there? If our government said that elderly people must die, they've talked about that, our response would be, I don't think so. Nope. So how did God respond to their disobedience? Now watch this. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty. We are multiplying and we're becoming mighty with all the babies. I love it. Again, because the midwives feared God, notice that again, he established households for them. So when it comes to saving lives, certainly civil disobedience is the right thing to do. Abortion isn't mandated. It could be at some point. And again, that's affirmed. God's pleasure here is affirmed by the fact that he blessed them for their courageous disobedience. The second act of civil disobedience is found in Exodus when Jochebed, Moses' mother, disobeyed the king. Now a man from the house of Levi, that's Amram, went and married a daughter of Levi, that's Jochebed, 
Moses' mother, the woman conceived and bore a son. That's Moses. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Remember, under the decree of the king, they were supposed to kill all the male babies. And so both of them disobeyed government in order to save Moses' life. The third example is when the people disobeyed King Saul's order to kill Jonathan. Let me give you a little bit of background on this. In 1 Samuel 14, King Saul decided that everyone had to fast for one day. But Jonathan was out running around hiding, and he missed the decree. He missed the edict, and so he ate honey. And so when Saul found out, he was enraged, and he put a bounty on Jonathan's head. Look with me at 1 Samuel 14, 44 and 45. Saul said, may God do this to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die, who has brought about the great deliverance in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and did, and he did not die. So the people refused the king to follow through on that order to put Jonathan to death. And again, civil disobedience was the only right path of action. The fourth example is when Queen Vashti refused to be degraded by by King Azaharas. Now the king goes on this this wild party, rant and raving for seven days. He was stuffing himself with food and drink and carousing with his buddies. And in a drunken stupor, the king demands that that Queen Vashti come and show off her body and uh, to to be shown off to the crowd. And so the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine and commanded Mehuam, Bistha, Harbana, Bigtha, Zitha, and Kerkos, when he, when, the, when he addressed them, he said they were, they were the eunuchs who served the presence of King Azaharas. And to, the, to, the, to, the, to bring the Queen Vesti unto the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and to the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Now, then there was a question as to what to do with her. Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Azaharas, delivered by the eunuchs. So she disobeyed the king and was willing to accept the consequences. She really lost her royal position. Let me say this real clear, real quickly. This would have been unacceptable treatment of a woman. And I think that any husband or any authority figure that would demand that any woman do something that was degrading, women, I think you ought to say absolutely not. Whether that's your husband or it's somebody, a pastor or whatever, God forbid, something like that, or a a teacher or whatever. I think this is a, 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 a statement of protection from you, for you. And so the king wanted to degrade her and she said no. 
And she was absolutely right for saying no. So this is a text I think that we can use for a woman. And and I've heard it, by the way, I've heard these kind of things, but aren't we to be submissive to our husbands? Not in this sense, you're not. Submission stops if he wants to do something with you or to you that would be degrading. Does that make sense? There's a a limit, guys, to submission. And as we said, you can still be respectful of your husband and say no. I love teaching this gender stuff. I just dare culture to say something, right? Probably shouldn't say that, but... (laughs) This, this is true, right? And so women are taken advantage of. They have been all throughout history. You do not have to stay in a situation where you are being degraded by a man because you want to be submissive. Does that make sense? There's a limit to that. And there should be a limit to that. Okay? And you would be absolutely right before God. He would bless you for leaving that and abandoning that and not accepting that. The fifth example follows um, when Queen Esther visited the king without permission. So after Vashti was kicked out, Esther became queen. She was a a woman of amazing courage. I don't know if you ever read the the book of Esther, but she is, you talk about women of power and, and, and significance, Her mentor, Mordecai, was greatly disturbed to hear about a new law calling for the destruction of the Jews. And he asked Esther to intervene with the king. But there was a problem with that. It was against the law to approach the king without getting an invitation. This is a strong, godly woman. And uh, there are a number of examples in the Old and New Testament of God, godly, strong women. So the stakes were very high. So Esther, um, Esther was, was not going to say no. She decided that she would intervene. Dangerous stuff here. Esther 4.16. Go assemble all the Jews who had found in Susa and fast for me. This, this is the queen. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And, and, and I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. Now watch this. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. If I perish, I perish. That's more guts than what most men have. That's amazing. So Esther here deliberately broke the law for the good of the people. And she's going to meet with the king to save many lives And it's a possibility she knows she might die because of it. She was willing to accept the consequences. In that sense, let me ask you a test question. Was she submissive to her authority? She still was. And if we looked at the text where she approached the king, she's very respectful and very honoring to him. and says, oh, king, and if it please you and all of that. So she's still submissive. But she said no to the law because it was the right thing to do. The sixth example is found in Daniel 3. Most of us know this story. One of the most famous in the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the golden image. 
King Nebuchadnezzar erected a massive golden statue for everybody to bow down to. And when the bell rang, everybody was supposed to go in and bow down and worship the king's statue. By the way, this is the exact reason that we have the separation of church and state. We have been misled as to what that means. That does not mean that Christianity or religion shouldn't influence religion. That's not what that means. If you believe that, you've bought a lie from our culture. What it means is that government isn't allowed to dictate religion. That's the idea. So I'm thankful we have that, but they've been abused and misinterpreted. That's the idea. And here's the reason why. Because we could have a king dictate that we go in and bow down to a worship of him. And so far, that hasn't happened. So if the people refuse then, guess what's going to happen? They're going to be torched. They're going to be thrown into a blazing furnace. Look at Daniel 3.12. There are certain Jews who have been appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now watch. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Look at verse 15. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? A sarcastic statement, taunting God. Government tends to think that they're God, don't they? And they want the people often to think that you can't exist without us. And a lot of people believe they can't exist without government. So it's not good when they claim authority, absolute authority in the political realm and especially the religious realm. So he tells them if they, dis, if they rebelled against him, they'd be burned to death. Now listen to the men's response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. That, that's, not a, that's not a statement of disrespect. He goes on to say, if it be so, our God, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Respectful, truthful, 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Respectful. Were they still submissive to the king even though they disobeyed? Yeah. They're willing to accept the consequences. They're submitting to the king. They're telling him the truth. They're being honorable. They're being respectful. They address him. They speak truth. They refuse to obey. And they basically say, if that's the consequences that you bring upon us, so be it. So government here should not dictate who we worship. And if they do, we say no, even if it means death. The seventh example is when Daniel refused to stop praying to God. King Darius put a a tough new 30-day law stating that no one could pray to any other gods but the king. I love this story. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, here's a little parenthesis. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. Kind of a little bit of a taunt, maybe. He wasn't hiding. So he opened his windows 
toward Jerusalem, which was indicating that he was praying to the God of Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then look at verse 13. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. They've been watching. And they're noticing, hey, that guy, he's not praying to our king. He's praying to his king, his God. And look at 16. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself certainly deliver you. What a sarcastic statement. He's taunting. Look at 17. A stone was brought over and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. So in other words, he couldn't be rescued. This, of course, works to God's favor because it could only be God of what happens next. In 22, Daniel explains what happened. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, insomuch as I have been found innocent before him. I also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. So Daniel, again, refused committing civil disobedience because the king demanded that he worship the the God that is not the true God. And he broke the law. That brings us to the eighth example, eighth example of church or of, uh, civil disobedience. Sorry, and it's found in the New Testament where the wise men refused to follow the orders of Herod. You know the story. They came to worship the Lord, but Herod commands them to return and tell them, of course, where Jesus was born, so he could kill him. And Matthew 2, 7 and 8 says this, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time and the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. For when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Verse 12, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, The Magi left for their own country by another way. So in this case, there was no direct defiance, but they still directly, they defied him and obviously went back home without following his orders. The ninth example is maybe a little bit unique, and that is that we have civil disobedience with the angels who announced the Lord's birth. You wonder, well, how could that possibly be? Well, during that time, For anybody to announce another God other than Caesar was against the law. And so the angels didn't care. (laughs) Look at Luke chapter 2. But an angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news of great joy, which will be on all your people. And today in the city of David, there's been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So they defied, certainly defied a a government mandate. And by the way, that's God doing that because angels are his messengers. So certainly there was civil disobedience there. The 10th example kind of looks to the future when believers will reject the mark of the beast. In Revelation 13, 15 through 17, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. 
By the way, if you've seen any of these new holograms and some of the technology things that are going on, they look very real and they sound just like the person. So we're beginning to see how that how that could be played out through technology. And we're seeing a lot of that, how the how the mark could work through technology and through um, digital money and, and monitoring, things like that. A hundred years ago, they were thinking, how's that possible? And today we're going, well, that's how it could happen. It's in place, right? And so he goes on in 16, and he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy and sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Again, if you're following technology and you know that money's going digital, companies can say, nope, your account's shut down. You can see where that would take place. But there's going to be authority in the world and there's going to be, there's going to be under authorities, under the Antichrist, and they're going to demand that we take the mark. And so if we're alive at that time, then we've got to say no at the risk possibly of starving. Think about what that would be like if today you had no money and stores wouldn't take anything of yours. They wouldn't, they wouldn't work with you. They'd say, well, if you don't have that app, I can't sell you anything. What would that be like? So the very fact of starvation will test the, the, the sincerity of believers, and they're going to have to defy government and authority figures. The 11th example is Jesus himself. He broke the Jewish laws. You know, we've got to make sure we understand something here. That we never find Jesus breaking Roman laws. But he did commit civil disobedience against the legalistic laws imposed by the Jewish religion. And the reason is they didn't line up with Scripture. The very first public act of Jesus and the disciples was to break the law on the land by picking grain on the Sabbath. Look with me at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 and 26. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and the disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They're always kind of lingering in the background. Now, the Old Testament law through Deuteronomy allowed travelers to pick enough grain as they traveled through uh, someone else's land to satisfy their hunger. That was a law that, that was permitted. But the Pharisees turned it around and interpreted, interpreted it as harvesting grain. So they were saying, hey, they're bringing their tractors in and, and they're harvesting all the wheat in the field when in fact they were just picking enough to fulfill, you know, fill their stomachs. 12 of them or 13 of them. And so any work then, that would be work, considered work on the Sabbath, even doing good such as healing was forbidden. And what did Jesus do? He defied their law. The twelfth example and the final one was when David broke the law by eating the consecrated bread. Jesus draws from the story of David to make a point about himself, which we just covered. 
And so in verse 25, then he says, and he said to them, have you never read? Remember, they asked him, why are you breaking the law on the Sabbath? And then his answer is, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he, his companions became hungry? See, there was a law, but there was human need. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. So David broke the law. So those are 12. There may be a few others, examples, where people still remained understanding of authority. They still respected authority, but only to the extent that they follow God's will. And if they broke that, if they, if they demanded something unbiblical, friends, they said no. And then they accepted the consequences. So in summary, here's what we've learned this morning. When government demands what God forbids or forbids what God demands, it is not only right to disobey, but we are obligated to disobey. As Peter and John say in the next chapter, we must obey God rather than man. So friends, this is not an option. It's not an option any more than any other command in the scripture. We can never break God's law in order to follow man. So I hope that was clear to you this morning. I really hope we don't have to practice this. I hope that we don't have to apply this, but in case we do, we now know. And I think we should be ready. And I think in our own minds, we need to to play the scene that if somehow we fall into persecution because of the truth, what are we going to do? We've got to decide that beforehand. And we've got to be ready. And if we do, we're really going to need one another. Because some of us may lose jobs, may lose family. We don't know. We do this for the sake of Christ. We do this because of His cause. And we're finishing up the suffering He experienced with the world hating us and yet the world needing the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the truth that you've given us. I pray that it's clear. I pray, Father, that we can now understand that we're not necessarily unsubmissive if we say no to an authority figure that demands something that's against your will. I pray that we will always be respectful and honoring and be examples of of Christ and the apostles and the midwives and Queen Vesti, Esther. I pray, Lord, that we will be as pleasing to you as they were to you by determining 
that we're to follow you and not man when man chooses to not follow you. Lord, I pray that we would have a demeanor of gentleness and caring. And I pray, Lord, that we would see people as needing Christ. We've got to remember that this warfare is really not against people. It comes out through them, but it's really not against people. It's against Satan and his demons and the principalities and powers. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful and I pray that you'd be pleased with how we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.